Isaiah chapter 50, beginning at verse 4. This is one of the servant songs of Isaiah. It is the word of Christ. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold all you who kindle the fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire. And among the brands you have set ablaze, this you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. And Luke 18, beginning at verse 31. Jesus is coming to the close of his Perean ministry, east of the Jordan River. He's on his way to Jerusalem for the final time, and he's drawing very near. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Amen. You and I may never know why it is that things happen as they do. But that question naturally comes up whenever tragedy strikes, doesn't it? Why? Why this? Why now? And answers don't usually present themselves amid all the overwhelming confusion and shock of this sudden unexpected grief, whatever it may be. 
good friends, family, and pastors may offer words of comfort, but genuine, reliable explanations, explanations of God's providence just don't exist among His creatures here below. You remember the book of Job. Job's friends tried their hand at it, didn't they? They tried to explain things to him. And chapter after long chapter, Job's three friends only made a hash of it. Because, truth be told, they didn't know why Job was suffering. They couldn't know. They had no way of knowing. And that's okay. Because when tragedy strikes, friends, we don't need to know why. Deuteronomy 29.29 is immensely helpful to the child of God who takes it to heart. Deuteronomy 29.29 begins this way. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So if the secret things belong to the Lord our God, then what you and I need to do on the very worst day of our lives, what we need to do is to love Him and trust Him and commit this whole sad mess, whatever it is, into His all-wise, omnipotent hands. God knows what He's doing. So if we pay attention to what he has said before trouble strikes, if we commit ourselves to the careful study of his word, then we may not understand the hard particulars of his providence on any given day. But at least we'll have the general framework of his plan for those who love him. At least we'll know what to do and where to go from here even in our shock and grief because the rest of that verse Deuteronomy 29.29 the rest of it on the secret things of God runs this way the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may keep all the words of this law. So if we pay attention, we'll know what to do. If we're trained, we'll be in a better position to know the next step we need to take. Intimate acquaintance, intimate acquaintance with the Word of God inoculates us against paralysis and despair on that coming day of trouble. And Jesus knew very well that in His case, that day of trouble was on its way for His little school of apostles. It was on its way quickly. So He tells them about it in advance to prepare them. And actually, you may remember, many times He does. Think about it. All along the course of his ministry, he had been mentioning from time to time his coming hour, hadn't he? 
My hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. He's talking about His hour, His coming appointment with destiny. That dreadful, deadly hour for which He had come into the world in the first place. It was the hour of His atoning, substitutionary death for sinners. That hour. And these occasional, gently understated announcements of His coming suffering and death grow. They grow both in frequency and in clarity as that hour approaches. You remember that way up north near Caesarea Philippi when Peter announced the the, uh, united apostolic conviction of the twelve that Jesus is the Christ of God. You remember that he affirmed it. He affirmed it. But he also told them what that was going to mean, both for him and for all those who follow after him. Luke 9.22 The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He's talking about the cost of being a Christian. The cost of being a little Christ, which is what that word Christian means. If I suffer, he says, then you can expect to suffer too. So be ready. All of that was way up north near Caesarea Philippi. And then a week later, as they make their way south, a week later, three disciples are with Jesus on the mountain where where He's transfigured before them where they overhear Moses and Elijah speaking with him about the departure, the exodus he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And again, the very next day, coming down from that mountain, he heals a young boy of his demonic convulsions. And Luke records for us in chapter 9, verses 43 and following, that they were all amazed at the greatness of God, but while everyone was marveling at all He was doing, He said to His disciples, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they wouldn't perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this statement. Dear ones, this was becoming something of a habit, wasn't it? In love, Christ reaches out to His disciples to steady them, to help them to establish them, to steel their nerves against His coming arrest and crucifixion. He reaches out to them in love so that on that dark day, that dark coming day, 
they will carry themselves as men and not as frightened little boys. But in their confusion, in their fear, fear of looking stupid, I suppose, they fail to understand what he's telling them or to ask the very reasonable question that any good disciple would ask. Rabbi, what exactly do you mean by that? And now his Perean ministry is coming to an end, just up ahead, just up ahead. There's this right turn in the road that's going to take them west across the Jordan River and into Jericho. And just a little beyond Jericho is Bethany and then Jerusalem. And once they get to Jerusalem, things are going to start happening very, very fast for them. So he takes them aside one more time and he tells them just as plainly as he can what's about to happen. He has never been more clear with them about this. He's never been more specific about the details. Because his sufferings now aren't just somewhere out there on the horizon. He's not thinking now of some remote prospect that is shrouded in the foggy mists of intervening time. Because for Jesus now, there is no more intervening time. His suffering is virtually upon Him. Which means those sufferings are upon them all. So one last time, He took the twelve aside and said to them, Look, most Bibles say, behold. But it means, look. He takes them aside and he says, look. We're going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they've scourged him, they'll kill him. And the third day will rise again. You see, Jesus loves them. And so He's never been more clear with them. Never been more direct with them about what to expect. Times run out and they need to be ready to face virtually the end of the world as they'd come to know it. It's the end of the world for them. What a threefold disappointment comes on the heels of this crystal clear description of what lies just ahead. Verse 34. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. which is just to say three times over in three slightly different ways that there is absolutely no light getting through to them. Absolutely none. So we have to ask, how do we explain this? How do we explain it? I thought about that 
And I suppose that by this point in their apostolic training, Jesus had conditioned the twelve to think even routinely in terms of parables and metaphor. Because that's largely how he'd been teaching them for the past three years, isn't it? Very effectively too, I might add. He'd been teaching them in parables and figurative language. And there's a learning curve to understanding figurative language. You've got to get your mind into gear for it, for interpreting it. Now, none of you are old enough to remember this, or not many of you anyway, which is just as well, but back in the 70s, the DJs on the radio were playing this song by the Commodores. The song was called She's a Brick House. Well, it turns out that means she's a pretty woman. But it never sounded that way to me. She's a brick house. I hated the song. It sounded to me like this woman was being insulted. It's a terrible thing to call a woman a brick house. And it wasn't just years. It was decades for me, slow to learn, culturally maladapt. It, it was decades before that urban metaphor was explained to me in a way that I could begin to understand. All along it meant she's a pretty woman. But there's a learning curve to understand these things. So the parables had conditioned the disciples to look for the hidden meaning behind Jesus' words. They'd been conditioned that way. The problem is, all of a sudden, he's not speaking figuratively anymore. He's plainly telling them the cold, hard facts. Here's what you can expect. Here's what's going to happen, and you need to be ready for it. But if they're still looking for hidden meanings, and if they're too timid to ask for fear of looking stupid, then naturally, they're not going to get it. They're going to be thinking, I don't want to look stupid, so I'm not going to ask him about this, but uh, I wonder what he means by being handed over to the Gentiles. I wonder what he means by spitting and killing and rising again. See, they've been so conditioned to look for deeper meanings that they don't recognize the plain truth when they hear it. So what are the takeaways from this very brief passage today? What are the lessons to be learned? In ascending order, from least to greatest, we might list them this way. Application number four. If you're ever reading along in your Bible and you come to something you don't understand, just ask. Ask. I've been reading my Bible for over 45 years. And I'm still having to ask about things that I find there. Things I don't yet fully understand. But the more of it that I master with God's help, the better prepared I expect to be for tomorrow. Whatever tomorrow holds, I will be better prepared 
for the day of trouble. I'll be better prepared for the worst day of my life. So if you don't understand, ask. Application number three. The cohesiveness of the whole Bible story teaches us to live this Christian life confidently. Confidently. God has lovingly wrapped His people in a seamless garment that has no holes, no gaps, no missing buttons. What I mean is that this whole Bible story, which is composed of many, many smaller stories, when all taken together, tell one grand story. It's the story of God's redeeming His elect people out of the darkness of slavery to sin and death. Redeeming us to enjoy endless covenant fellowship with Him. And dozens and dozens of men born along by the Holy Spirit wrote these words over a span of about 16 centuries or more and a number of successive world empires. And yet all of these are telling one story. Redemption in Christ Jesus. And he makes this point in the 24th chapter of this same Gospel, doesn't he? The very day of his resurrection, that evening, he meets with his assembled disciples, his assembled church, and he tells us, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Beloved, with clear minds that are illumined by His inerrant Word, we can take this message of Christ Jesus, our risen Savior and King, to the world. We can do this with complete confidence. Application number two. If you love your children, you'll train them day in and day out how to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And how to face with biblical wisdom and boldness the challenges that they're going to be facing in the days ahead. Because they are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of human history, there has never been a generation able to skate through life without difficulty. And there's certainly never been a generation of Christians able to cleave to Jesus Christ by faith without shouldering a cross as He did. So the best thing you can do for your own beloved children living in a world that hates Jesus, the best thing that you can do for them is to condition them to think as the Apostle Paul did. 
Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, he said. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Train your children so to live by faith in union with our crucified and risen and reigning Christ. Whether in life or in death, He will keep them safe. Application number one comes from the latter words of verse 33. Although we've got to be braced for impact, although we've got to be as fully prepared as we can be for the trouble soon to be upon us, we also need to bear in mind one overarching fact. The death and the grave cannot hold Jesus Christ. The third day He will rise again. And you know He's as good as His Word. Because in actual historical fact, on the third day He did rise again. And over the course of the next 40 days, hundreds of eyewitnesses testified to seeing Him, testified to hearing Him, He rose again. Which is precisely why this long and very unusual story, the Bible, is precisely why this won't go away. Fallen men in a fallen world like to cook up their own religious explanation of things. This natural human proclivity for fables and myths This accounts for every other world religion. It accounts for all the mere traditions of men. But Jesus Christ rose from the dead, confirming, sealing, validating everything that had been written about Him in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Dark and troubled days lie ahead. The cross casts a long shadow down through history. Let His covenant people, therefore, as we face those days, face those troubles, let us be strong and courageous. The risen and reigning Christ is, in His own words of Revelation chapter 1, the first and the last, and the living one. He was dead. And behold, is alive forevermore. And He alone holds the keys of death and Hades. Amen. Let us turn now in our Psalters to Psalm 116, Selection A. (laughs) 